It's good to be with you guys. Um, it's Advent season, and Fleming Rutledge um, wrote an excellent book on Advent called Advent. And she writes in this book about a memorable, the most memorable Christmas card she ever received. And she said that on the front of the Christmas card, it was bright red and green and gold, and it was festive and cheery, and it had all the accoutrements of a good quality Hallmark Christmas card. It was cheery, and on the cover of the Christmas card, it quoted the words from Luke chapter 1, verse 78, which says, from on high, our God will bring the rising sun. It's a pretty standard holiday card, right? Just bright red and green, real cheery, all of that. She said, but when you opened the card on the inside, in stark contrast to the very cheery cover, there was a black and white photograph of a malnourished child in poverty in a developing country. And it finished the verse from the front flap. It said, from on high, our God will bring the rising sun to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? That is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That light shines into the darkness. Fleming Rutledge said it was the best Christmas card that she ever received because it demonstrated in raw honesty and in full truthfulness of the way the world is the, the, the theme of Advent and Christmas which is so much better than all the cheesy Hallmark cards. And the theme of Advent and Christmas is that light shines into darkness, and darkness cannot overcome it. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You see, the waiting of Advent, the painful waiting of Advent, and the hope of Christmas, it's about light shining into the darkness. It's about God redeeming broken lives and broken situations when all looks depressingly dark. God shines light into darkness. That is what Advent and what Christmas point to. And the truth is that some of you may be living in quite a bit of darkness as you're sitting here today. Life can be hard. We know this. Life can be hard. Relationships can be difficult. Circumstances can be challenging. Finances might be tight. Grief may be very real and very present for you right now. And maybe the future feels uncertain. Life can be dark. Just today at the Guild, I was talking to one of the residents. And this uh, resident, while we were doing our Christmas pageant, got up and left the room. And I went and I, I sat down to this person. I said, uh, I noticed you left. You're not enjoying the Christmas program? And this, this person said, um, I'm just mad at God right now. And, uh, you know, this is an adult with Down syndrome, just raw honesty, beautiful raw honesty. And this person says, I'm just mad at God right now. So why are you mad at God right now? And this person said, because he took my parents this year. It's that darkness. Life can be dark. But the hope of Christmas is that light shines in our darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And we've been studying the book of Ruth during Advent, this Advent season. 
And I believe this book is as great a picture of the faithfulness of God in the midst of darkness as any book in the Bible. This book is set, I'm going to give a bit of, quite a bit of recap today as we close out the, the final chapter, but this book is set during the time of Judges in Israel's history. And if you know anything about the book of Judges um, and the time of the Judges in Israel's history, it's a time of moral chaos. There's just moral decline happening all over the nation of Israel. There's idolatry, there's war, there's political instability. Um, sound familiar at this point? And so you're like, oh yeah, I know what that's like. But there was also enslavement and there was famine. And, and so you're like, the setting of the story is darkness, but then it zooms into an individual's life, which is darkness, and it's the life of Naomi. This one woman, and we find out in the first pages of the book that she has, is grieving the death of her husband. She's grieving the death of her two sons. And she's left alone with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's a foreigner and has no children. Death, poverty, barrenness, darkness. That's how the book starts. It's so bad that it's the book, like the picture that we get in the first chapter, Naomi's situation is so dark that she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Just call me bitter. And listen to what she says. The Lord has made me empty. I once was full, but the Lord has made me empty. She says, God has done this to me. It's like the person I talked to today who said, God took my parents this year. God has done this to me. It's darkness. So this book starts with this depressing foundation of darkness. Why is God silent? Where is he? Where could he possibly be in this situation? But it's into this situation, into Naomi's life, into Ruth's life, into the time of Israel where everything was depressingly dark, that God shines his light and his redemption into the lives of these people. And not just Naomi and Ruth, but into the lives of the whole world, and as you'll see, into our lives as well. This is the theme of the book of Ruth, that despite the darkness, God's invisible hand is always at work bringing about his good purposes. So we're in the final chapter this week, Ruth chapter 4, and as a quick summary, I want to catch you up. Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, are now in Bethlehem. They are both widowed, they have no children, and as a result, they're poor, they have no source of provision or safety. This is the situation these two women find themselves in. Remember, this is ancient, Near Eastern, patriarchal society. Without a husband and without sons, women did not have much stability. That's the reality of the situation they were in. And on top of that, Naomi is growing old. But Ruth still has a life ahead of her. And so she really needs to seek out some stability for herself, but also she wants to find some stability for her mother-in-law. So Ruth goes out into the barley fields, not typically a woman's job, but she goes out there and she works hard. She's a hard worker. She kind of catches the eye of all the people. They're like, who? This is a woman of, of character and independence and incredibly fierce. And while she's out there working, she meets a man named Boaz. The scriptures tell us that Boaz is a worthy man. That means a whole lot of things. Uh, it means he's rich, and it means he's a good guy. That's essentially what it means. And we also find out that he is a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But that gets Naomi excited. And so she encourages Ruth to make a move. Again, ancient, patriarchal, Near Eastern society. Women don't make the first move. If you're looking for a biblical example of an independent woman... Ruth is the one. 
Like she goes out and she gets what she's got her eyes set on. But there's a problem, and you got to understand that Ruth has three strikes against her if she's trying to seek out a husband in Israel. The first is she's not an Israelite. She's a foreigner. And not only that, she's a Moabite. And Moabites were considered to be a cursed group of people who had a vastly different culture, different gods from the people of the Israelites, uh, from the God of the Bible. And uh, Naomi, or Ruth, even though she was a Moabite and she was from this culture, she, she turned from the false gods of Moab and she's now a follower of the God of Israel. But the people in Israel still look at her as a foreigner and not only a foreigner, but a foreigner from Moab. So she's foreigner, but she's also poor. That's the second strike against her. And in this culture, that would have been seen as God's judgment on her. God has done this to you. You must have done something for God to have made you poor, for God to have taken away your husband. But then on top of that, she's widowed and she has no child. So this does not make her desirable as a spouse in this time because it means that she would have been regarded as barren and that would have meant she has nothing to offer to the marriage or the relationship because remember, having sons was the whole purpose of everything in this culture at that time. And the point is, is that the situation for Ruth is incredibly dark, as it is for Naomi. Ruth's situation is dark. She's grieving the death of her husband. She's trying to move forward in life and, and get back into marriage. But what hope does she have of getting married to a man in Bethlehem with all these strikes against her? But then Boaz enters the story. And he's called a worthy man, which means a whole lot of things, but it implies he's wealthy. It implies that he's respected. But most of all, what we see in the life of Boaz is that he's an honorable man who loves and obeys God. This is who Boaz is. Um, Boaz is also a man's man. Boaz probably would make fun of my sweater right now. You know what I mean? Like, uh, that's not, he's, uh, he probably has more calluses on his hands than I do, and his beard was probably a little fuller than mine. But we know some other things about Boaz. He's related to Elimelech, who is Naomi's husband, who's Naomi's late husband which means that he has the ability to become a kinsman redeemer for Ruth. Now, keep hanging there with me. What is a kinsman redeemer? In those days, if you were in debt, your property and your land and your, inher- your possessions would be deeded out to someone in order to pay off your debts, which is what would have happened with women in this culture when they were widowed and they didn't have sons. And this is certainly the situation that Ruth and Naomi were in. Now, a widow in this time would have the right to buy back their land. Ruth and Naomi had the right to buy back their land. The problem is they didn't have the resources. They didn't have the money to buy back their land. But the law of Moses says that the closest relative of the deceased husband can become what's called a kinsman redeemer. And what a kinsman redeemer is, is someone who would marry the widow, buy back her deceased husband's property, And then, if they had children together, those kids, get this, would carry on the name of the first husband so that his name will continue on. That's what a kinsman redeemer is. And to be a kinsman redeemer, a man would have to have three things. First, he would have to have the right to be the kinsman redeemer, which means he must be the closest relative. He has to have the right to do that. Only the closest relative can do this. He must also have the resources. If he's broke, he can't buy back the land. So he's got to have money. He's got to have resources to buy the the land. 
He has to have the ability to buy it all back. But third, he has to have the resolve. It's his choice. Nobody's forcing someone to be a kinsman redeemer. This is voluntary. And he would have to want to do it. And the truth is, for somebody to want to do that, that is a big act of self-sacrifice because it's not in their self-interest to buy land that would go to a son that doesn't even carry their name. It's, it, it would take a self-sacrificial person who's willing to give extravagantly and gain very little in return when it comes to in the great scheme of things. And this is where the story of chapter 4 uh, picks up. Boaz has the right to be the kinsman redeemer, we think. He's a relative. Um, he has the resources. He's wealthy. He has the resolve. He really wants to marry Ruth. This is a love story. And he wants to become her kinsman redeemer. But there's one problem in the story, and that is that he's the second closest relative. He's not the closest. And there's another man who is closer to Elimelech than Boaz. And this man has the right of first refusal. And so Boaz says to Ruth, Ruth, if he's willing to redeem you, you must marry him. But if he doesn't, I'll redeem you. And this is where chapter 4 begins. And what I want you to recognize before we start reading the Scripture is that throughout this book, there has not been one single miracle. There's been nothing supernatural. There's been nothing, signs and wonders. There's not like, it's not like the Exodus. It's not like, you know, Elijah and Elisha. It's not all this kind of stuff. This book is just faithful people being faithful to God in ordinary circumstances, and God's invisible hand and his kindness bringing together these people despite all these difficult circumstances. This book is not about the power and the miracles and the signs and wonders of God. It's about the faithful, sovereign hand of God working through ordinary circumstances. In chapter one or chapter four, verse one begins like this. It says, Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate. And sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, this is the man, <clears throat> of whom Boaz had spoken, he came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And notice that his name never gets mentioned. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And it says, he turned aside, and he sat down, and he took ten of the elders of the city and said, sit down here as well. So they sat down. He's gathering witnesses. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of these men sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And he says to the, this man, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for if there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you, he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz says, the day you buy this field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And so what you've got is, here's the story. He says, he lays it all out. He says, if you, do you want to buy back this land? The guy says, yeah, I'll buy it back. And that seems like bad news, right? You're like, oh, the, he's going to buy it back. Ruth and Boaz's love story, it's over. The closest relative, he's willing to buy back the land. This is not how we thought it would end. It seems as if the love story is over. But then Boaz lays out all the fine print. And he says, if you want to buy back this land, it comes with two things, Naomi and Ruth, a mother-in-law and a wife. And that wife, 
you will have her children and they will be in her first husband's name. Deal? That's a lot to ask, right? Uh, to sacrifice your own financial situation, to sacrifice your own self-interest for your legacy and your children, to take on this difficult circumstance of Ruth and Naomi. I mean, these are women that are grieving. This is, it's hard to take on another person's pain like that. He can buy the land, but he must also take the struggles of Ruth and Naomi. And so verse 6 says, the Redeemer said, well, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, Boaz, for I cannot redeem it. So he backs out. He says, I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. Boaz, the cost is too great for me. She's all yours. And look at verse 9. It says, then Boaz said to the elder, elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought the land from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and all that belonged to Malon. And I always make this joke, but those sound like some Klingon names, don't they? Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Milan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this, his native place. You are witnesses this day. This is where we see the integrity and the kindness of Boaz on full display. He pays a great price to inherit all the struggles and the trials of these two women. And there's a lesson to be learned here, I believe. The first man looked out for his own self-interests. And it's, not, it's, it's hard to blame him. I mean, who would sign up for that deal? But he, he looked out for his own self-interest. But notice that the author of Ruth goes to great pains not to mention this dude's name. It's like they go out of their way to not mention his name. He is insignificant to the greater story is what they're trying to say. But Boaz chooses self-sacrifice over self-preservation and his story is recorded for all of history to see his kindness. It reminds me of what Jesus said when he said, for whoever would attempt to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Boaz pays whatever cost it takes to redeem this broken situation and God uses Boaz and all the circumstances that have led to this moment to shine light into the lives of Naomi and Ruth. And look how it ends. So Boaz, verse 13, took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven, which is a number of infinite. So more to you than a billion, million, trillion infinite sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse and the woman of the neighborhood, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Not even Naomi's son, but this is the kindness of God. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David, and on and on and on, and fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary. Matthew chapter 1 says, the mother of Christ. The story ends with Jesus. 
but it also ends with Naomi, which I love. You think the, the credits would roll the moment Ruth and Boaz get married and have a child, but it goes back to Naomi because in the first chapter, we see her life completely torn apart. She says, I was full, but now I'm empty. And now we see her back to full at the end of the story. You see, God shines light in darkness. We see her life put back together, redeemed and restored. And I want you to see three things from this story. The heart of God is redemption. This is God's heart. Redemption is when you take something that has been broken or lost, something that had a good original purpose, but somehow, some way went wrong, and you make it right again. That's what it means to redeem something. And that's exactly what God does in the book of Ruth. In fact, the word redemption is used 23 times in the book of Ruth. This is four chapters. That's six to- nearly six times per chapter. And in this book, we see redemption after redemption after redemption. The book of Ruth, remember, starts with death. Naomi loses her husband and her sons in a foreign land but it ends with a genealogy listing, recounting the list of births. J.D. Greer, my former pastor, says that Ruth ends in a genealogy because the Bible ends in a resurrection. For the world, life starts with birth and ends with death. But for the Christian, we realize that we are born into death, but we are born again into resurrection life. This is what God does. He redeems, he restores, he resurrects. Naomi goes from barren to blessed. She starts the book as a forsaken, sonless, husbandless beggar, and she ends as the grandmother to the Son of God. This is the theme of Ruth, and this is the theme of the Bible, and it's the heart of the gospel, and it's God's message not just to Naomi and not just to Ruth, but it's God's message to you and to me this afternoon. The message of the gospel is not God rewards and uses the successful, and God grants heaven and to the awesome. The gospel is, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The gospel is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The gospel is the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You see, we, you and I, were created to be children of God. His original design, his intention for your life and for mine was to be constantly in his presence and to have all that is his be ours. Yet we sold it all away through our sin and through our rebellion. And yet Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, he had the right, he had the resources, and he had the resolve. And as unlovely and rebellious as we were, he loved us and he redeemed us and he redeemed our inheritance back for us. And God now has made a way through Jesus for us to be in his presence once again, redeemed all our lives that have been broken by sin, redeemed and made whole by the blood of Christ. Because God sees us in the same way, no, greater than Boaz saw, saw Ruth. He loves us as we are, no matter how dark and messy and complicated our lives are. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, what you have broken 
in your life, the part of your life that you have made a mess of through your sin, and the part of your life that has been broken by other people, by their sin, and the part of your life that's been broken simply by the darkness of the world, all of those things God offers to redeem through Jesus. God is a redeemer and he wants to redeem your life. The second thing I want you to see is that God uses ordinary people as instruments of his redemption. If there's any clear theme from the book of Ruth, this is it. God uses ordinary people as instruments of his redemption. You know, we all have, if you have a project around the house, or if you have something you want to accomplish, there are often tools that you need to get the job done, right? I was having a conversation the other day with Kyle about the purpose that every single pair of running shoes that I have serves. And I have to explain this to my wife often, like to justify why we spend so much money on running shoes. You've got your shoes, Monday shoes, right? You've got Tuesday shoes. You've got, they have a specific purpose because Monday is an easy run. Tuesday's a workout. Wednesday's like an easy run, but a little bit faster and a little bit longer. Thursday's like your tempo run. Then you got your long run. And you need different tools for each of these, it's right? You need a pitching wedge, right? You need a sand wedge. You need a driver. There are tools for specific purposes. And God has a specific purpose in this life. There are things that he wants to accomplish. And the tools he uses primarily are ordinary people who are faithful and obedient to what he has called them to. Does God perform miracles to bring about his purposes in the world? Yes. Does God use signs and wonders to bring about his purposes in the world? Yes. Does God use dreams and visions to bring about his purposes in the world? Yes. But those are the rare occurrences, the common and the primary ways that God wants to bring redemption into this world is through ordinary people doing ordinary, faithful, obedient things in the way of Jesus. In the book of Ruth, I mean, it is Ruth, a foreign Moabite woman, an elderly woman, an elderly widow, and a Bethlehem farmer <laughs> that God uses to set the chain of events in history that will lead to Jesus the Messiah. The cross and the resurrection does not happen without the faithfulness of ordinary people doing ordinary, God-honoring things in a field in Bethlehem years prior. And not only that, if you read that genealogy that I read, I mean, Tamar, I mean, Rahab, there, there are some stories in that genealogy. Ordinary people with ordinary problems and ordinary lives and ordinary struggles. These are not superheroes that God is using to weave his purposes into his story. In fact, some of these people are way worse than you and me. They've done some things. And God uses them for great things. God uses ordinary people as his tools for redemption in the world. I love um, C.S. Lewis. You guys know this. And one of the great C.S. Lewis books is The Great Divorce. Just show of hands, who's read The Great Divorce? Raise them high. Okay, a lot of people need to go buy The Great Divorce tonight. Well, there's a scene in The Great Divorce where the main character, he gets a vision into heaven. And he's standing around looking at heaven, kind of admiring all the angels and everything. And then all of a sudden, he notices off in the distance there's a procession. There's a parade. And everybody's gathering around. There's somebody that just entered into heaven that everybody is like, they're dying to see. 
And, you know, C.S. Lewis, uh, or the, the character leans over to uh, the, 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 their friend and they say, is it, uh, is it this person? He's like, no, 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 it's nobody you've ever heard of on earth. He said, we measure things differently here. You know who that is? It's Sarah Smith of Golders Green. And then the story just recounts Sarah Smith. She was a woman of prayer. She was a woman who loved the children in the neighborhood. And she was the woman who was faithful to the way of Jesus in Golders Green. Nobody know, knew her name on earth, but everybody knows her name in heaven. And there are so many people in my life that I look at and I think, there is going to be a celebrity, paparazzi, Beatles mania moment when these people enter the kingdom of heaven. There was a woman from our church back in Alabama uh, named Miss Susie. Um, she's the woman that I called the first year we did the Easter extravaganza, and we, we were praying for 150 people, and 1,000 people showed up. I called Miss Susie. I said, Miss Susie, um, you know that story where Jesus multiplies loaves and fish? I was, she was like, yes, I've heard of it. And she sa I said, pray that God can multiply plastic eggs. And Miss Susie, the most faithful woman of prayer that I know, she got on her knees and prayed that God would multiply those eggs. And seven, eight years later, the extravaganza is still going strong because of her faithful prayers. Alejandro, when I first met you, um, I, I, I spoke with Susie that week, and she said, anybody new coming to your church? I said, there's a guy named Alejandro, and she prays for you every single day, and she asks about you all the time. You've never met her. This is the type of woman that is heaven's going to go crazy for. Miss Susie of Jacksonville, Alabama. And there are people in this church that are just like that. And I even think of my own life. As I'm coming, you know, you know, as I'm coming to the end of my time as your pastor, I just look back on this last seven and a half years and I just think to myself, like, how kind is God? Like, I was born and raised in Scottsboro, Alabama. Like, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, you know what I mean? And God has saw fit in his kindness for a kid from Scottsboro, Alabama to get to pastor this church. And I haven't, it's not because of my skill. There are a lot of better pastors out there. It's not because of ability. There are plenty of good preachers out there. But I believe, I've made mistakes, but all along the way, I think, I, I, I've been faithful. And God's used that. And it blows my mind that God can use ordinary people like me and you. The final thing I want you to see is that darkness cannot overcome God's redemption story. When you look at this book as a whole, the book of Ruth, you see that all these situations are redeemed. Like a foreigner is adopted into Israel. You've got a widow who's now a wife. You've got a, a barren woman who's now a mother. You've got a woman who lost her two sons, now being given a grandson. You've got Boaz who probably was looking for a wife. He's now got a wife. Like it's, it, it's, it's this beautiful story of redemption. But let me ask you a question. Who's the redeemer in the story? Is it Boaz? Yes, in a sense. But even the book of Ruth doesn't call Boaz the redeemer. 
If you notice in verse 14, it says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. She's talking about Boaz? He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, more, uh, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The redeemer is the child. Little Obed, <laughs> the redeemer of the story. He's the one who brings complete joy in the final verses of this book. Obed is the one who keeps the family name going strong. This child is the redeemer of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz's story. But it's the child who would come who is our redeemer. Matthew chapter 1 says, Obed had Jesse, Jesse had David, and on and on and on it goes to Jesus the Messiah. And I want you to see that just like Israel in the time of Ruth, Israel in the time of of Christmas was a dark place. Much like Ruth and Naomi, Mary was in a tough spot. She was poor. People looked on her with suspicion. There was the threat of death. Herod was trying to kill the firstborn. In Israel, it was a turbulent time. You had Rome breathing down their necks. Christmas was a dark time in Israel's history. You know, we sing silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And I love the song but there was nothing silent about it. And there was nothing calm about it. And there was nothing peaceful about it. It was hard and it was darkness. It was the setting is a manger. But God literally shines his light into that story. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And that Christmas child, Jesus, would be the ultimate redeemer. He had the right, the resources, and the resolve to redeem this world and cleanse you from your sins and deliver you from whatever darkness is in your life. So you and I can say today, along with Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left us this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. And he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. That's what I want to say to this person that I spoke to at the guild today. I want to say, I know that it feels like God has taken things away from you. I know that it feels like you are empty. But he shall be a restorer of life to you and a nourisher of you. So as we close the cover on the book of Ruth, I want you to consider these things. The invisible hand of God is working in your life even in the darkest days, even when you cannot see it. And the invisible hand in this world, the invisible hand of God in this world is moving for one purpose, and that is to redeem you, to reconcile you back to God, to your Redeemer that you've been separated from. And he wants to use you to be an instrument of his redemption to others. You know, Boaz extended the hand of marriage to Ruth. And she accepted his proposal and his redemption. He made the ask, she accepted. He did the sacrifice, she received the gift of the sacrifice. And the same is true with you and me. God has extended his hand to you. He has sent his son, his only begotten son, into the world to die in your place. And those who would believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Translation, can be redeemed. So God has extended redemption to you 
Have you accepted the redemption he gives? This is the offer of the gospel. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, all who are widowed and broken down and barren and tired and weak and empty, and I will redeem you. This is the invitation of the gospel. Let me pray for us, Crossroads. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness um, in this world. And sometimes it is invisible until the last moment what you're doing in our lives, just as it was with Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. And God, I pray for those who are going through darkness right now that they would not give up and that they would remain faithful so to the day where they can see your invisible hand at work. And God, I pray that you would offer, or you've already offered your redemption. I pray that we would receive it with glad hearts this Christmas. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.